0: Hello, and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this is the very first episode. Uh, Every episode is going to feature a short story, followed by an interview with the author of that story. We'll talk about how the story came to be, and what are the themes of the story, and how does fiction relate to social struggle, and all those kinds of things. This podcast gets its name from a quote by a woman who I think is the greatest anarchist fiction writer that the English language has ever seen, Ursula Le Guin. And in 2014, when she was presented with the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, Le Guin said this, quote, I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Le Guin meant a lot to me, um... I, I interviewed her for my first book, Myth and Lawbreakers, and she kind of opened a lot of doors uh, for me, um, both as a as a baby anarchist and a baby writer, and I was just trying to figure out what my role was, how I, how I fit into larger struggle, and talking to her really opened my eyes to a lot of possibilities. And when I learned that Le Guin died, um, I was sitting in Firestorm Books, the the anarchist cafe in Asheville, and I was I was crying, uh, and I've never really cried like that at celebrity death, and I wasn't crying for her sake, of course. Like Leguin lived to be old, and you know, did more with her life than most of us can hope to, and I, w- I was crying because I, I, I preferred a world in which she was in it, and I preferred a world where she was doing the work that she was doing, and. I had a lot of like whispered conversations, usually by, by signal, which is sort of like the whispering of our generation, maybe with other anarchist fiction writers where we were like, Oh God, what, what now? And I think all of us realized that we had to kind of step up collectively and, and do a lot of work. And, uh, and that's really, really scary. Um, and so I decided to start this podcast Uh, I guess to, to draw attention to writers who I believe remember freedom. Uh, And I'm, I'm really proud to launch this podcast with a story by Cadwell Turnbull. Uh, He was, I reached out to a couple people as soon as I started this podcast and he was the first person to submit a story to me and I read it and immediately wrote him back and bought it. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. uh, And I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with him afterwards Uh, as much as I enjoyed reading this story. So, this is the the very first episode, and it's also the first podcast that I've ever recorded. And so, I'm hoping you can help out the podcast. Uh, One of the main ways you can help out is by writing a review, at least rating it on whatever method by which you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, Tell your friends about it if you like it. Um, You can also submit us stories. There's information on our website about how to do that. And you can, if you want to support the, the podcast more directly, uh, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Killjoy, and I've been paying for this podcast out of pocket. I, I pay the narrators and I pay the authors because I believe that writing is, can be a working class profession and I want people to get paid. Um, but I'm not getting paid yet for this podcast uh, besides kind of what I get paid through Patreon for sort of all of the art that I create. And so if you enjoy it, please go consider supporting me there. Um, But if, you know, either way, if you can tell people about
1: it. When the Rain Comes Back by Cadwell Turnbull, read by Nisi X. This story was first published by Asimov's Science Fiction in April 2018. Myron knew he'd find Sasha on the roof of their little domed house. Since she was little, she climbed the coconut tree onto the dome so she could watch the moon. From Ath, during a crescent moon, you could see the faint glimmer of the moon's greenhouses shining star-like out from the lunar night. Sasha hardly ever missed an opportunity to see it. Myron stood on the massive stone at the edge of their yard. The roof of their house wasn't very high, from his position, he could see that Sasha was lying on her back, her hands cupped under her head, her elbows pointed like little wings. The stars sparkled overhead. You couldn't get a few of the night sky like this in cities on the continent. Even Great Prince didn't have a view like this with all their city lights. The greenhouses were one thing to behold, but what Sasha really wanted to see was the colony itself. The colony's dome wasn't made of clay like the dome of their house, but of tri-layered panels of glass, plastic, and argon. The sort of thing only a capitalist could dream up. It was impossible to see with the naked eye, but Sasha liked imagining it up there, thriving metropolis on another world. Myron called out to Sasha, Little one. Yes, Pop, Sasha said. You need me? No, child. Myron smiled up at his 12-year-old daughter. Just wanted to ask you something. Sasha sat up on the dome. Hmm, she said, which meant spit it out. He was disturbing her night gazing. I'm going to Big Island tomorrow, Myron said. You want to come with? By boat, she asked. Seaplane, Myron answered. Myron couldn't quite see his daughter's face, but he knew she was smiling because he knew his daughter. Yes, she said. When? Early morn, he said. Soon after rooster grow. Be ready. Sasha nodded and returned to her gazing. She would stay up there for a while longer and then climb down defeated, failing again to locate the object of her affection. Myron hated the moon colony, but Sasha loved it. She wanted to visit it one day. Myron and Sasha's mother, Lena, could not get the fascination out of her. He just hoped that she would resist the lure of such things. Anarchists belong to Ath, not the moon. Myron and Sasha watched from the beach as the seaplane came in for a landing. The plane roared as its floats touched down on the blue-green water, spitting up sea foam as it skimmed the surface. Myron wiped his forehead with a piece of cloth. The sea breeze did nothing for the heat. Sasha was sweating too, but she seemed unconcerned about the beating sun. She watched the seaplane like it was some magnificent god. The plane turned in the water, its twin propellers slowing to a stop. It settled next to the dock. A woman leaned out of the plane to call them forward. Myron, with his daughter in hand, made a short walk across the creaky dock that knifed out a little ways into the sea. They climbed into the seaplane and greeted the captain and her second, women Myron had never met. They exchanged names. The second called herself Mamye. The pilot was Siana. Beautiful day for a short hop, said Mamye, smiling at Sasha. Yes, miss, she said, smiling back shyly. Oh, no, no, said the woman. Don't go calling me, miss. I'm not so old yet. What is your kind, Myron asked. He made trips to Great Prince all the time and was usually escorted by a team of Demis socialists, also women. He'd come to know them well and expected them for the escort, but these two were new. Just vagas, mister, said the woman. Oh, Myron smiled at the woman. Vagas were people without government who made their life working among different kinds. People without roots. The woman smiled back at Myron with knowing eyes. Don't worry, mister. We got a community on Big Island. Fellow vagas. Good people. Strap in, said Sienna, her voice deeper and sterner than her second. Myron and Sasha strapped in, and then they were off. As the plane skipped across the water and heaved itself into the salty air, Myron looked out the window at Little Princess. He watched the little community of domed houses, watched his people mill around in the heat. Not too many. The sun was too violent at this time of day for strolling about. When he was too high up to see the people anymore, he surveyed the island in its entirety. He didn't like what he saw. Usually from this high up, the island looked green and beautiful, dense plant life that could attract any tourist just by looking. But now... The site was mostly brown. Everything looked worn and withered. As they passed the west farms, Myron had to look away. Nothing was growing. The few crops they managed to plant were wilting in the sun. Such a hideous thing, said Mamié. The rains have been gone so long, who knows how we poor islanders will survive. The dry period had been coming on for years. Now they were lucky if they got a few inches. Is it no different on Big Island, Myron asked. Surely you get help from other govs. Mamie nodded. But all the region govs getting hit hard too. And many of the region govs on continent don't have the means to transport their surpluses. The woman was looking at Myron, so she caught his change in expression. She nodded in affirmation. yes. The global govs have been helping us, but even with their help, things have been hard. Myron was a representative of his small gov, but he hadn't traveled to Great Prince for a while. He was not fully aware of all the changes. His expression darkened. Now he knew the full scope of the summit. How many global govs? Myron asked. Hard to say, Mamie answered. Maybe three or four. Regulations say that non athem can have too much influence. They must work their deals through local and regional govs. Myron nodded. What kinds? Uh, two global socialist govs, Hammers and NG Leaves, I think. And one capitalist, as far as I can tell. Maybe another one, though less powerful. Coming in on Big Island, Sienna announced. Myron looked out the window, and they were already descending. From this height, Great Prince looked just as starved as home. All the brown and dying plant life. Maglev trains sped across the surface of Great Prince like silver veins. The sky was busy with small aircrafts that buzzed like mosquitoes. On the surface, solar cars snaked their way along cramped streets. Great Prince had two dozen govs quite a few of them capitalists, so the tech was markedly more advanced than on Little Princess. Soon they were on the water and pulling up to the dock, which was much more impressive than the creaky wooden one on their island. The women waved them goodbye as they exited the seaplane and found their way to the busy street and into a free shuttle. The bus was cramped with travelers, so they had to stand. It didn't take them too long to reach the summit building, strategically located near the docks. A large crowd of Gov representatives were already clamoring inside when they arrived. Myron allowed Sasha to walk ahead of him, since she'd be able to maneuver through the crowd and find them a good seat. It took him several minutes before he was through the doors of the summit building and another few minutes before he entered the hall. He spotted Sasha jumping and waving near the front and made his way down the aisle to where she had picked out a pair of seats. The hall itself wasn't anything spectacular. It could seat up to 500 occupants comfortably, which meant many spectators would have to wait outside the building, watching the proceedings from a big screen set up for the purposes of spillover. Because he was a representative of a gov, he was guaranteed a space inside and a spot for a guest or two. Usually, though, there weren't this much people. This was clearly very important. Before long, a short man made his way to the podium, and the room quieted down to listen. Greetings, residents of Great Prince and neighboring islands. We have an announcement. The man was pale, which meant he wasn't from these parts. He had an accent Myron didn't recognize. The United Governments must have sent him. This drought that has struck you is being felt all across the world, he continued. Other Govs have suffered from your crop losses, certainly not in the way that you've suffered, but a loss anywhere is felt everywhere. If you have been tuning into our UG deliberations, you would have learned that we have placed humanitarian aid as our top priority. Great Prince is struggling, but because of your technological level, you've been able to stave off the worse. But many of your smaller islands with more, um, he paused to think, Reclusive governments, he nodded, apparently satisfied with himself, have been suffering tremendously. Myron watched Sasha. She looks bored. The man continued, I know some of your govs might be hesitant to accept aid, but don't be afraid. The UG is making sure that large governments will not exploit you. Any governments above regional designation must work through regional governments in order to offer aid. These partnerships will prevent any trouble. Local govs can form partnerships with any regional gov they wish for as long as they wish and no longer. I trust that you will be able to work out the specifics among yourselves. Some govs have already started partnerships. The man smiled warmly. That is the full announcement. Your choice and your trust under this wondrous panarchy remains preserved. Good luck in your lives. We hope this time of struggle passes. The man left the podium and people began to leave the summit hall. That was it, Sasha asked, clearly annoyed. They could have told us this from Little Island. They have to invite people to come so people can protest if needed. Protest what? Myron shook his head. (laughs) Nothing this time. Sasha huffed and folded her arms. At least we got a trip out of it, Myron added. This managed to change Sasha's mood. She smiled. What you want to do today? Myron asked as they got up and made their way out of the hall. Don't know, Sasha said. She was cupping her chin and thought, someone touched Myron on his arm. He stopped and turned to see who it was. It was the same white man that made the speech. Hello, I'm Holland Fetters. Could I trouble you to discuss the situation on your island? Yes, Myron said. I'm afraid you have the advantage here. I don't know anything about you, but you seem to know me. It is my job to know people, said Hyland with a smile Myron didn't like. You are from Little Princess, yes? Representative of the anarchist gov there. Myron nodded. He looked down at Sasha. She was quiet as usual, but watching the man intently. Always so attentive. Yes, I am the representative, Myron answered. Should we go to lunch? Yes, naturally. I know a great place. We usually eat fish and local fruits and vegetables, Myron said. Oh, Holland looked a little saddened by the information. Surely you wouldn't mind a change of experience. The food is lovely at the place I'm inviting you to. Myron looked down at his daughter. She was nodding at him, which meant stop being so uptight and accept the man's offer. Okay, Myron said, lead the way. Holland was right. The food was good. As Holland talked, Myron chewed on a piece of steak. The meat was tender, not tough like the beef they ate on occasion when they slaughtered a cow getting on in years. Yes, the meat was good. But what life did this cow live? Myron looked over at Sasha. She had left her meat untouched are you sure your daughter wouldn't be happier going to the movies or something, leaving us to this boring affair? Myron frowned. Where I'm from, we don't patronize our children. My daughter is perfectly capable of participating in this boring affair. But she's been so quiet, Holland said. She will speak when she wants. Okay, Holland said, throwing up his hands. Fine by me. Holland's mill was already devoured. He wasn't suffering from the same moral dilemma as they were. Which gov do you represent, Myron asked. One of the socialist govs? Or maybe you're a capitalist. Holland smiled at Myron. It was the same way he did before that made Myron feel like worms were crawling under his skin. I belong to one of each, actually. Angelese and Romana. I'm a dual citizen, but I'm here to serve Romana's interests at the moment. Another smile. Myron drank down all his water and refilled it with a pitcher on the table. The restaurant was well-decorated, pretty vases in the center of the table with flowers he'd never seen, intricately designed tablecloths, long-draping chandeliers, and servers dressed in elegant black and red suits and firm-fitting dresses. This was definitely meant to impress Myron. He wondered what a show like this would cost his people. What do you want? Myron asked. We'd like to offer you food, Holland answered. Yes, but you also want something. Romana sets aside a certain amount of our budget for humanitarian aid. and makes us more attractive to potential citizens looking to join our gov. You're not answering the question, Sasha said, looking up from her steel full plate. Myron watched Holland's expression change. Genuine surprise, Myron had to admit. He liked seeing Holland surprise. And the girl speaks. That is a sharp one you have there. I do not have her. She has herself. You anarchists, Holland said. And then catching himself, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult. Some of my best friends belong to anarchist govs. Probably anarcho capitalists Myron thought but didn't say. On your island, Holland continued, apparently deciding to get to his point. You have a certain type of mango, yes? Small and sweet, not stringy like so many other small mangoes. Deep orange meat like a sunset. Tourists come from all over to eat it. They pay well too, don't they? Myra nodded. Narrowing his eyes, we call it sweet plum, and tourists do pay a price for it. We use that money to buy whatever tech we need. Solar lamps to light our houses, electric stoves, computers and laptops, medicine. We have no other source of revenue. Myron took another bite of his meat, chewing slowly, keeping his eyes on Holland. The band seemed to enjoy the attention, curling his lips in that disturbing smile. Myron swallowed. You cannot have it, Myron said. We will pay generously. As the communists from Queen Mary, we can't stop you. They have sweet plum too, though not as sweet. They said they originally got the seeds from you. That's honorable of them. Too bad for you, though. Holland glowered. How long will you starve yourselves and refuse outside help? But this isn't help. This is coercion. Holland was turning red. You? Sasha interrupted. Didn't you say up there on that podium that global govs have to act through regional ones? You shouldn't even be here right now, ambushing us like this. Holland looked at Sasha. He was careful not to show any real aggression. He laughed nervously. (laughs) Such a smart girl. Person, Sasha corrected. Don't patronize me. Myron smiled proudly. Listen. Alan said, looking at both of them, forcing down his anger. We just want the seeds. You can set the terms. We will only grow the ones you give to us. We will only sell as much as you allow. In exchange, we will give you whatever food you need. Our greenhouses and hyperbolic growth chambers can match your natural environment perfectly. We can grow the food you like to eat. That's moon tech, isn't it? Sasha asked. Myron could see the interest in her eyes. Even though she tried to hide it behind a tight jaw, he knew his daughter. Yes, Holland confirmed. But we've been using it globally, Sasha nodded, satisfied. She returned to staring down at her plate. Please, Holland said, consider it. We will work through the regional govs as promised, and you can end the arrangement at any time. I will bring it to my people, Myron said. That is all I can do. There were so many people crammed into their summit dome that they had to crank their one air conditioner to the max. It did nothing. Almost 100 people vying for space. Myron secretly wished some of them had stayed outside, but this was not their way. We have been living like this for over a century, said one man. We only started selling the mangoes because outside govs thought we were too isolationist. And now that's not enough? They want to take our seats too? The room erupted in shouts of affirmation. A woman in the back of the room yelled, Sell the damn seeds! My child needs food! A chorus of agreement. We only need to do it for a little while, said another woman. When the rains come back, we can take back our seeds. We set the terms. Applause. I am not a capitalist, says someone from the front. It was Myron's grandmother. Some of you too young to care, but not too long ago, during the time of my great-grandpap, capitalists ruled aft. And they almost destroy civilization. A few centuries before that, they had all the wee dark people as slaves for profit. You believe a thing like that?" People jeered passionately. "'I'm not trusting no damn capitalists,' his grandmother continued. I don't care if it make me a bad panarchist." Thunderous applause. "'But we don't have any food,' said another woman, old but younger than his grandmother. Soon we're going to have to ration like those damn communists from Queen Mary. A few bits of laughter mixed with murmurs, Myron looked to his wife, Lena, sitting at his side at the discussion table. It was an honor they gave to the family of the representative, but that didn't mean they had any more say over the decision than anyone else. His wife was staring in the mid-distance, seemingly in intense concentration. He knew she would speak, and many in the room did too. They respected her. Even though she was originally an outsider, she would be able to sway some people with her words. When Lena spoke, it was soft, but the whole room hushed to hear. Back when I was a child, there was another drought. Not quite as terrible as this one, mind you, but bad, bad. On Queen Mary, we always kept ration, but our rations were shrinking. People were worried. Back then, we decided we would throw parties every night. Bring all our rations together from the day to make a feast. So we ate under the stars, coal pots burning on our beaches, salt on our tongues. We passed the food round and everyone ate. We told stories by bonfires. We held our children. When the rains came back, we were skinnier, but we were happy. Now... When I go back home to my family, there was a party on the beach every week. People save up their rations for it, and they pass the food round, and they laugh through the night. Lena was looking around the room now. Everyone was silent. Many knew that the communists had these parties, but Lena's words came from her mouth like magic. It felt like new knowledge. Whatever good or evil comes, it comes from people, not things, not govs. Ideology doesn't fill bellies. When the rains come and no one is left to see it, what will any of this matter? We live, we change, leave stubbornness to the dead. Myron looked at his daughter. For most of the discussion, she had been looking down at her hands. Now she was looking at her mother. He knew his daughter. But in moments like this, he couldn't tell what she was thinking. His little paradox. She'd be a woman soon enough. Who knows where she'd end up. He knew she would likely leave him one day. Leave this little rock in this blue-green sea. People had already started arguing amongst themselves again. Lena had succeeded in winning over quite a few people, but there was still no consensus. They would have to go to vote or risk an endless deadlock. Okay. Myron said, standing. Shall we vote? Ten years later. Sasha spent a lot of her early nights on colony in her room, reading history books about the collapse. When she was not at work in the colony's growth chambers, she scoured the colony's virtual libraries, poring over books like a religion, learning things about ass she'd never learned on Little Princess. For one thing... Most people back home believe the global economic collapse happened quickly. In truth, the collapse was slow, a culmination of many boom and bust cycles over several decades. As global capitalism deteriorated with each recovery more short-lived than the last, people started thinking up alternatives. It started among academics of relative privilege, playing out theoretical games with the world's resources, devising better systems of distribution and stability, and organizing people. By the time of the collapse, people had secretly declared themselves members of all sorts of imaginary governments, had even enacted small-scale experiments in their names. When things got bad, when Ath erupted into war that lasted a half century, it was these groups that proved the most tenacious. They carried around their governments in their heads, devised ways to distribute resources, to defend themselves, to gain influence. These Govs had no borders, no lands, just the volunteered allegiance of their citizens. Sasha found herself imagining those distant people, trying to find footing in a rapidly changing world. It helped her cope with the changes in her own world. The transition to colony had not been easy. Sasha missed swimming in the ocean, missed running around without shoes on dirt roads and climbing coconut trees. She missed the cool breeze that whipped through her hair on tropical winter nights. Her room in the colony had windows, but all she could see was inside of the dome. It was artificial light. Other buildings poking up from the moon's surface like branchless trees. She could make the smart glass show her images of Ath of the sun shining over the blue sphere of her home world, but it felt too artificial. Sad to go to a place you had dreamed about all your life, she thought, and find that you were still dissatisfied. So she read books. Growing up, Sasha had always been told that the panarchist came after the great economic collapse. So many things she realized were like this. Half-truths, guesses, myths. Even the scholars deliberated on the fine details endlessly. History is like water. It slips through fingers, gifting the world with wet hands. The rest falls away. There was one idea that stuck, however. Sasha imagined it as a pebble in the constant stream. Ath held on to it, united behind it. Governments should not force allegiance on their people. People should be able to choose. Anything less is slavery. It was a mantra she read in all her books. In some form or another, it was elemental, encapsulating the world's ideals, their hopes, their dreams. Too bad this was also half-truth. Nothing is so easy. Choices aren't clean. They're muddied by so many things. Your mother misses you. She wants you home. Sasha and her father were having dinner in her room, staring at each other across a small steel table. He had only arrived on the colony an hour before, his first time off-world. Of course, he wasted no time to guilt her, to make her feel like she had abandoned them. They couldn't even have a decent meal before he started in on her. Don't put this on, Mammy, Sasha said, barely concealing her annoyance. You here for you. Your mother agrees with me. No, she don't. She told me last week that she was happy that I was happy. But are you? Sasha took a bite of her salt fish. She chewed slowly, savoring the tender meat, the sweet plum glaze. Her father watched her, not touching his meal. I love my work, Sasha answered finally. The research I'm doing in crop science is groundbreaking. There was something else she wanted to add, but... She didn't. Not an answer to my question, Myron said. Staring at her, trying to read her like a book, she hated that. Sasha sighed, looking away from her father's face to the plate in front of him. She knew why he wasn't eating. Since they had decided to allow help from Romana, their community had been torn apart. When the rains came back, half the community decided to return to their old ways, and the other half decided to become anarcho-capitalists, maintaining their relationship with Romana through the great Prince Demis Socialist. The two communities supported each other, but not without resentments. Come home, her father said. I'm fine, Pat, she said, smiling. Really? Every year, these damn capitalists exploit people, gaining more power for themselves, Now that they've left Ath, how long do you think it will be before they start thinking that they can force people to do what they want? How long before they enslave you? Her father shook through the words, unable to contain his fear. He picked up his fork and stabbed it into the sawfish, only to release the fork again. He wouldn't eat much here, no matter what she placed in front of him. This was a place he thought people shouldn't be. You won't be safe here, he said. Confirming her thoughts, she will never be safe among these people. Colony is filled with people of all kinds, Pop, Sasha said. I've become a dual citizen of our home gov and an anarcho-socialist gov here under the dome. It isn't just capitalists up here. They share influence just like on ass. But who holds the majority? Sasha didn't answer. Her father already knew the answer to the question. That's why he was asking it. Truthfully, Sasha worried too. Panarchy had proven to be extremely durable, but could it span a solar system? A galaxy? Even with regulations, the global govs found a million different ways to stretch their power. What would that look like on a galactic scale? On colonies, she had met people of all kinds, people from monarchies, technocracies, meritocracies, and oligarchies. She worked with communists and socialists and anarchists and capitalists and hybrids of every manner. She'd seen income-based economies and resource-based economies, sharing gift economies, all coexisting in one place peacefully. But her readings had also taught her that peace was a fragile thing, that conflict was always clawing its way to the surface. What face will it have when it crests? What will be the price? Sasha took a breath, prepared herself. I met someone, she said. What kind, her father answered. She is a wonderful woman. We take care of each other. You are not answering my question. Sasha stared into her father's eyes. When she was a child, he trusted her so much, treated her like a person that could make her own decisions. Since she'd left, he'd changed. He no longer trusted her to make good choices. He didn't believe in her. She felt her eyes burn, her throat tighten. She watched his face change, like clay slowly molded into a new form. She barely recognized him. The way his nose flared and his mouth twitched, the way his eyes got so wide that the solera surrounded the brown iris all around, drowning the brown in a sea of white. No, he said. Don't tell me. He slammed his hand down on the table, denting the still slab. The movement was sudden and explosive. Sasha gasped audibly. How could you do this? He asked, his voice trembling. People do this all the time, Sasha answered, her eyes wet with tears. I will not allow it. Guffs have no borders and neither does love,' she said, defensively. "'You married a communist. I will not,' Sasha glared at her father, the fire in her finally rising. "'You don't have a choice.' Her father stopped talking then. He looked at her, his eyes pleading, but he had no power he could call upon to move her, no authority except a fatherly one that he'd never truly exercised. "'Not in this way.' Sasha wanted to reach out and touch him, to tell him a convenient lie that would make it all right. But things hadn't been all right for a long time. Everything had changed. They're taking over the island, her father said. Now he was crying in frustration. They've taken our mangoes. They've corrupted our culture. Sasha remembered her mother's words that day. They had made the decision to live for now and not for some potential future tragedy. Now that tragedy was here. And what they did now would also have repercussions for the next future. I'm sorry, she said to her father, reaching over to touch his bruised hand. He tensed at her touch, but eased into it, saying nothing. She tried to smile at him, but it felt false, and soon she gave up. One day she'd have children, and what world would they choose for themselves Perhaps they would choose something that would horrify her or something that would make her proud. Maybe that future would be entirely different from now. They'd be on some new planet, some distant moon. Maybe they'd be entering a war or ending one, or maybe this peace will last a thousand years. She rubbed her father's hand gently. Later, she would introduce him to Rosa. She hoped he would understand then, but... She couldn't be certain of this or anything else, only that she loved her father, only that he loved her. She'd leave the rest for tomorrow. Okay, Sasha said, I'll come to visit for a little while. That would be nice, her father said. In the ensuing silence, Sasha thought of what it would be like to stare up at the moon again from Earth. She dreamed of visiting it for all her life, and now it was her home. So peculiar, the distance of things, and how time brings them ever closer. Given enough time, all things touch. (laughs)
0: Well, do you want to introduce yourself? Okay, um, my name is Cadwell Turnbull.
2: I'm a science fiction, fantasy, horror writer. I've been published in um, a few spec magazines. Um, Lightspeed, Asimov, Science Fiction, Nightmare Magazine. I have a book coming out in in a week um, called The Lesson. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's... um, Alien, first contact novel set in the Virgin Islands. Uh, I read a lot about the Virgin Islands where I grew up. And um, this story, um, When the Rain's Come Back, is set in an alternate-esque Virgin Islands in a panarchist society.
0: Okay. And so people have just, just heard it right before this interview. And I'm wondering if you could tell sort of the story of the story, like how the story came to be. And what what inspired you to write it?
2: Right, um, I had been reading for a while about panarchism, and um, when I was in when I was doing my my grad school um, MFA stuff, I was reading up on it and thinking a lot about it, and starting to f- um, think about what kind of problems I would see with a system like that. And for those unfamiliar, like panarchism is this concept of governance where you get to choose your government and governments can compete for your um, your allegiance or your membership. And there's no forced um, governance. You have to, um, you allow your your members to have a choice to leave the government if they choose. And so in disimagining um the story that I wrote people can choose all sorts of governments. They can be um, like place based, or they can be international, um, they can be anarchist, um, communist, any assortment of those socialist, it um, can be democratic, um, they can be monarchies. And so um, I, I think it started with the idea of this. Um, what would a panarchist society look like how would it come to be and then I started imagining well what's a really um small contained story that I could tell within a world like this what's something that people could latch on to and so drawing from my own background I decided to set most of the story on um these two islands that have um a really close relationship with each other but one of them is an anarchist island and one of them is um an island that's filled with uh, a few different governments, and um, looking at the the conflict that comes out of a drought that happens in the in the um, the region, and when um, outside governments start to come in to try to make deals with the um, with the anarchist government and figure out how they can get something that they want, and in this case, it's um it's just mangoes. They have a particular um, kind of mango on the island that is really attractive to people on the outside. And um, there's a capitalist government that wants to really take advantage of that. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it came out of a mesh of different ideas. I was, um, I don't remember when I actually started writing it. It's one of those things that I was kind of playing around with in my head for a long time and then decided that I was going to put it down to paper. And it came out within a month and it's pretty much in in that um in the way that it's presented in the story.
0: Okay, uh, what is the response to the story, Ben? Have you have you heard much? You, <laughs> no, <I've
2: read> it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I published it in Asimov Science Fiction, and I got a few um, online reviews, and I got a few people that thought it was interesting, and they reached out to me on Twitter, but not not much. There there hasn't been a, a huge response to the story.
0: Okay, um, I mean it's you know you were the, the is the first story I, I considered for uh, for this podcast, and as soon as I read it, I, I you know knew it was kind of exactly what exactly the kind of story I was looking to 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 put out because it's such an an insider perspective on some of the problems that can happen within an anarchist society, and uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you you handle, I mean, it's interesting because it's a story sort of about, you know, this anarchist economy that is threatened by a capitalist economy. And uh, and it's interesting because in some ways it serves as a critique of panarchy, at least to me, because mm-hmm. it is showing the ways in which, well, if you still have capitalism within a panarchy, uh, even if people are able to choose their, their governmental system, their, you know, the, the economic pressures that can be put on them by capitalism can still, like, totally fuck up their their society um that was one of things that attracted me about it but one of the other things that attracted me about it is it's also a story about the relationship between a father and his daughter uh, and Mm. and that's the kind of story that i'm I'm, I'm really interested in i'm kind of curious how much you thought about balancing those two needs of the story while you were writing it
2: right okay um yeah, I was also really interested in writing the story for those reasons, because I had been thinking about panarchism for a really long time. And, be, and I was very excited about the idea. I liked the idea of being able to choose what government you wanted to be a part of. But I immediately I started thinking about, well, what are the problems with a system like that? And it's the same kind of problems you have with um, a capitalist system, um, if a government gets too big and too powerful they have the ability to use soft force on their neighbors or on smaller governments and one of the things that i wanted to explore in the story is what what would that look like um on a really small scale and what would it feel like it's because for a lot of the um the anarchists that eventually agree to do this because they're they're basically starving it does not seem like they're being forced, but it's one of the ways that, um, capitalism often acts to force people to do things that they don't want to do because they don't have any other choice. And so exploring, um, what that would look like in a society like this, um, was really um, exciting for me. And one of the things that I got from people that, um, did review the story was that they wanted to see more of the world. Um, but I felt like it was more important to show how that would play out on a an even smaller scale between a, a um a daughter and her father. I wanted to show how a difference of opinion would would splinter that relationship and how that maps to how the the anarchist community is splintered because um, by the end of the story. The daughter goes off to the um to um to the moon to do stuff that she you know she really is passionate about, but that causes a um a big rift between her and her her dad, and I thought that was, I thought it was a bigger, more important story than explaining all the ways that panarchist <laughs> works in the world.
0: I th- I think that makes sense, and, and actually to me that kind of again shows sort of the the insider perspective where i i didn't have a moment where i was like oh i need to see everything about how this this world works and instead i like the 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 simpler critique you know it's both this uh, for my reading it was both this critique of the way that capitalism can destroy ideas of consent right like someone consenting to be part of a government and yet because of the ability to accrue power through through capital or whatever that can be Threatened, but also this critique um, of of anarchism, or rather the ways in which anyone can become essentially conservative. The way that the father is is talking to the daughter in the end on, on the moon. I mean, it r- reminds me most uh, obviously, and it's kind of annoying because anyone who writes about any anarchist society gets compared to the dispossessed by Léguin. Mm-hmm. But but it seemed maybe intentional. I'm not. I'm not sure the the sort of um, the level of showing how. People are people, and even within this you know this free gov uh, of the anarchist gov, how someone can go from respecting their daughter's choices to to sort of limiting it in a kind of almost conservative way right
2: yeah it it's definitely i mean, I don't think it's annoying I really that's one of my favorite books, and it was in conversation with that, of course, there's a lot of ways that I was trying to do something different, but definitely. It's something that I was thinking about when I was writing it, the, um, the, the parallel between the earth and the moon, um, the, the conservatism of the dad. And it's, you know, it's I just thought when I was working on this, that it would be really interesting to think about an anarchist that would have a very conservative point of view. Versus, like, I—I I don't know if I would describe the daughter as a liberal anarchist, but within that world, she's very much like, "Oh, everything's great," and she's only by the end of the story really starting to um, fully worry about what the repercussions of some of the things that are happening will be. Um, and so, it was interesting for me to think about, well, what if it? What if we imagine a world where anarchists can? Range of belief or experience that would come out of that. What. What would be the differences between, you know, the dad who's very conservative and the daughter who is very um, liberal? And it was, you know, definitely something that I thought was important to explore because I wanted it to be a complicated view of anarchism.
0: That makes sense. Uh, can can you talk a little bit about your interactions with anarchism or your political identity?
2: Um. My if you don't want to answer this, I can cut it out n- no no, no, it's fine. <laughs> i'm gonna try it's i have i'm very much um I'm trying to figure out how to how to put it into words. I haven't had to put it into words in a while, so I would consider myself anarchist I am very attracted to the idea of um different points of view. It, coexisting in, in, in a space and figuring out how that could work. Um, but personally I'm very much, um, I kind of aligned towards, um, forming governance on a small scale through consensus. And it's part of the reason why I'm really interested in like solidarity economics and like democratic institutions that, um, that try to attempt some, some sort of consensus. Um, as I've taken time and thought about where I am and where the world is, I'm very much like pragmatic about what that will look like and how that would come to be. Um, I don't know. So there's a lot of um, agnosticism that I attach to (laughs) my own point of view. I don't know what's going to happen. I know what I feel, which is, which is not like a very um, intellectual way to approach it, but it's it's what I would want from the world. I expect that it's more difficult to actually accomplish it, but, you know,
0: I'm going to keep wanting it. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. I, I sometimes find myself telling people I didn't choose to be an anarchist because I wanted to like be on the team that's most likely to win, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it, it's certainly like... And I think that's like one of the things that's interesting about this story and, and, and other stories like it, and I, I, I think that the best sort of anarchist... Utopian or descriptions of a society stories that I've read tend to be at the same time critical of what they're presenting as um, as they are critical of the the other things that we might be against here and now. Um, right. And so, I don't know. I, which, I guess from my point of view, is like the most anarchist thing to do or whatever is to be critical of anarchism when we <laughs> talk about anarchism rather than trying to sell people on the idea. Right?
2: Absolutely. Right. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about it too. I feel like yeah you I f- you just you have to do that right it's if you're gonna if you're gonna believe in a system that's so anti systems and and is about people and thinking about how do you make things work on on the on the individual level on the group level, but through through working through a conflict you have to you have to think about what are the conflicts inherent in that and so Looking at um, a community an anarchist small anarchist community that will make the kind of decision that they make in in the um, in a story was really important to me because some of them were making that decision um, for reasons that made sense in the immediate in the present and then some of some of them were thinking about the long term and sometimes the the, um, the immediate threat wins out and it was important to explore that being a a legitimate um, conflict that would show up in an anarchist society, that there would be, at some point, there would be something that would be a really difficult choice. And I wanted to show, well, people are going to fall on different sides of that choice, but neither of them are wrong for
0: making those decisions. I think you succeeded at that. I mean, you know, I, I listened to that scene and the, I'm I'm with the the mother on the you know describing hey on the communist island we all feasted and you know it worked we got through it um but I but it it I actually appreciated it in the story where I was like okay it wasn't the stirring speech that changes everyone's minds and everything is perfect now you know um I think that it it felt realistic although it was still kind of heartbreaking mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um can you talk a little bit about um Uh, setting the story in the, the Caribbean and kind of what that means to you. Right. I just hadn't
2: seen anything like that before. And it was something, it was something I desperately wanted to see. So when I started thinking about, well, if I'm going to tell a story about a panarchist society, where is it going to be set? It just made sense to set it in something that looked like the Caribbean, because I think given that history, um especially there's um there's a character in the story um an older woman that brings up the fact that you know um capitalists used to have slaves and it seems to me that that critique is is interesting within the context of the caribbean that if mm-hmm. there is a radical society on a small scale i could see that happening in the Caribbean, I could see a, a certain brand of conservatism that would have come out of that um, being in the Caribbean. And it was just it was really an experiment for me to see. well, OK, if I if I take this idea and I put it here, what do I think that would look like and feel like? And it, you know, it just sort of came together that way. It made a sort of sense to me.
0: OK, that makes sense. Um. So this is a, a, a change of topic, but it's the, the one of the other things I want to talk to you about if you, if you want to. When mm-hmm. I, I first met you, um, we had a long conversation about code switching in fiction. And I've never had a conversation quite as um, deep on the topic as I, as I did with you that evening. I know you were studying it at the time, but it was also something that was you know part of your lived experience. And, and mm-hmm. I had been talking about it, and I don't have to code switch from a racialized point of view, but I, I sometimes run into sort of class issues uh, in that I'll have editors tell me that my stories aren't realistic because the character is using a combination of like big words and cuss words and it it throws them out of the story and I want to be like have you just not met any of my friends I don't understand <laughs> um, right. but I, I, I'm, I'm curious um, kind of where you're where you're at about well I'm just I'd love to hear your spiel on code switching and fiction if you if you feel like it
2: yeah sure um yeah I had someone critique me for using the word um unfathomable um <laughs> <laughs> with um a, an older caribbean woman a, a woman from saint thomas using it um in the middle of her using the saint Tomian english um dialect which some might describe as broken but I would describe as having its own you know unique set of rules um and so yeah there's definitely you do get pushback from people that don't understand that when someone uses a particular vernacular, it doesn't mean that they're incapable of understanding words that are have multiple syllables. Like it's it's <laughs> it's a choice. It's um it has meaning. It um it transmits a lot of things that aren't just the words themselves. And it it's important for me, and it was important for me within the story to play around with that to have um the characters have really really intellectual conversations and also use vernacular and it's been important for me in other stories to have um the narration the um the the point of view also use vernacular and so i've i've played with that a few times having um like even third person narration use slang use vernacular curse um it's one of those things that if you read a lot of fiction you don't see it a lot you don't see the the omniscient point of view allowed to have a personality,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, it's been important for me because it seems to me that that's um, a subtle way in which colonialism acts. It it just it does not allow for the um, the point of view of God or the point of view of um, authority to use anything except a standard. And so in, in my little ways, I try to rebel against that in writing. And I think it's really important, um, not just to use it in first person, not just to use it in dialogue, but also to try to figure out ways to, um, subvert that expectation within, within prose.
0: Yeah. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have a book coming out next week that will already be out by the time that, uh, people listen to this, uh, do you want to kind of give a, a shout out to that or, or talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, um, we've been talking about colonialism and it's it's um, a first contact novel that tries to explore issues of colonialism. It's um, called The Lesson and it was um, something that I was working on at the time when I was talking to you too. It was um, definitely um, a project that I tried to... Um, insert some of these these issues and conversations about la- language into. It's um, set a little bit in the future. Um, aliens have been living among the Virgin Islanders for a few years, five years, and it's about how the community responds to that. It covers, it follows mostly um, three families and their different um the different conflicts as they relate to the ENA, which is the race of aliens that have been occupying the space. The aliens are are interesting because they're not they're not trying to take over. They're just doing they're just living there for a research project. They have something that they want, they're trying to get and they've been very quiet about what that is, but they have a particular philosophy about the world about the universe that creates conflict among the humans
0: so thanks for listening to the very first episode of we will remember freedom Uh, we'll be coming out every month with a new story for at least the indefinite future and please uh, follow us and rate us and review us and listen next month with the next story I'd also like to thank some of my Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the Dog. I'd like to thank Kirk and Arga Warga Press, Natalie and Sam. Thank you all so much for making this possible. And thank you for listening.